Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible weekly through the support of the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Nancy Lawson is perhaps best known as the Humane Gardener, the title of her first book and her online signature name. And a humane gardener she is. Nancy is a master naturalist, a habitat consultant, and founder of the Humane Gardener LLC. She observes, researches, and pioneers creative, wildlife-friendly landscaping methods. In other words, and in all senses of the phrase, Nancy puts her gardening where her words are, and these both come together beautifully in her newest book, Wildscape. Nancy, I am so pleased to welcome you back to Cultivating Place to learn so much more. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's really an honor to be back here with you again. How do you introduce who you are and what you do in this world? And maybe include the importance and role of plants in that introduction. Yeah, so I'm a nature writer, uh, first and foremost, and I am also a habitat consultant, meaning that I help people understand what might already be growing in their spaces and what other habitat elements they might have and how to enhance uh, anywhere that they live for wildlife. And the way that plants um, come into my world is is that they are... Um, <sighs> They're so overlooked, not just as their own beings, but also as their connections with animals. And it sounds always so simple when you say it, but plants depend upon animals and animals depend upon plants. You can't have one without the other. And I think, you know, oftentimes there are mindsets that tend to to get um, sort of focused solely on protecting plants or focus solely on protecting animals without linking the two. And mm. I kind of have navigated both of those worlds over time um, and mm. seen the need to, to bridge that. So, and for me, I mean, plants are, <laughs> plants are my friends. I mean, I, since I was, since as long as I can remember when I was, you know, my earliest memory when I was two and a half or so, we were camping. Um, and I just remember being in this storm with my father and uh, everyone else had gone ahead because I was little and my legs didn't move fast and the rest of the family and friends were older. And so we got poured on and we just dashed from tree to tree and took shelter. And my dad was giggling and it was just like, this it just became part of me that the, the trees were our shelter, our umbrellas. They were experiencing it with us. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so that's beautiful. You've already taken us towards your father a little bit. Will you continue on this sort of earliest influences and um, and if you would like share with listeners the 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 
thread that is your father through this narrative you have woven? Yeah, so my dad um, was a plant pathologist, and his specialty was flowers. Um, so he ran the florist and nursery crops lab at the USDA. And one of his uh, sort of proudest moments was when he started something called the new crops program. And he would go around the world and collect flowers to grow for the floral industry, mainly for houseplants, um, mm -hmm. but also for gardens, which is interesting because, you know, one of my goals is to get people to plant their local ecotype native plants <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so there's a little irony but on the other hand it's an irony born of time and place and perspective right yeah exactly so in his even into his 80s he was uh, tending a, a new pollinator garden that he started about 10 years ago in his front yard and lamenting that other people weren't doing it more in his community and um so yeah, he um, he was just enchanted with plants his whole life, and he started a he started a greenhouse in Oregon in his backyard when he was ten years old. A greenhouse business growing tuberous um, begonias, and he had a mentor, um, a horticulturist in Portland, and. That was that was the beginning of his career. And so he and my mom, really, my mom was a big animal uh, person. And um, and so they just taught me that, you know, life is not the same and and not livable without, you know, getting to know the other um organisms around us the other beings around us and mm. and i would i would sit back in his little woods that he made in our little suburban plot and sit among the azaleas and and um i don't i just always wanted to be in a forest um and you know i i was joking recently with i think you had uh, you had benjamin vote on your show recently and he's not a forest person he's more of a prairie person so yeah. <laughs> I was like I'm the squirrel and you're the prairie dog <laughs> and I think that sort of comes into play just by the land that that we grow up in that's what we become comfortable mm -hmm. with and so as a result now I'm trying to regrow a forest in this formerly two acre um two acres of turf grass where we live. And yeah. Yeah. So were you, so had your father already relocated, remind us, to um, the central U.S. and that's where you were born and raised, not in Oregon, but in Maryland? Yeah, exactly. He They moved mm -hmm. here um, after a short stint in the Netherlands. Um, he had a Fulbright scholarship there and then they came here when he got the job at the USDA and my mom always missed the trees in Oregon the evergreens and uh, the conifers and um they thought they would move back someday but um they they never did so uh that's part of I think 
I think part, I think that was somewhat of a displacement um, mm-hmm. in the sense that you know sometimes when people move they and especially now there's there's easier ways to get to know your local plants and animals and and wild communities but uh, people used to just try to bring those communities with them mm-hmm. and and so where I really learned to love the local place was when we were camping. And I think that's what I hear from so many people who end up growing up being in this field in some way is that they, they came to love it when they were just outdoors in the summer in the woods with their families. Yeah. And so move us along your own trajectory and, and what brought you to being a nature writer um, and you know, ultimately you, your, your online name is the humane gardener. And that was the title of your first book, uh, which is all about gardening with the greater lives of our planet in mind first and our comfort and aesthetic pleasure second. Yeah. Um, I, I was a journalist and then I worked for the Humane Society's magazines for about 17 years. And the thing that really kept drawing me increasingly as a as a subject matter of passion for me was our urban wildlife department uh, along this uh, alongside when I was also learning about native plants and um, their importance to local wild communities. And so I, I just started writing more and more on those topics when I could and started writing a, a column called Humane Backyard and thinking about the fact that plants are really not only the solution to attracting wildlife and feeding bees and feeding birds and providing shelter, but they also help resolve so many conflicts that people uh, have either create or just unwittingly have with uh, with local wildlife in their spaces because you know there often aren't enough plants for mammals to eat or or you take away habitat like um, the shoreline buffers along lakes and then geese want to nest there and they don't have that buffer anymore that that keeps them from seeing into the water and so then they can fly in there quickly when predators come and all of that and and so those are those are the types of issues I learned about along the way that I thought you know we really need to be thinking less about approaching conflict resolution through you know what are the things we can do to get these animals out of here or mm-hmm. what are these exclusionary things we can add which are sometimes fine and necessary as long as they're not damaging but i mean what did we do in the first place to this landscape that's either created or exacerbated this problem and mm-hmm. there's so many ways <laughs> that we can mitigate yeah. that yeah yeah and I think that is the crux of the the first book is the importance of learning to see the the challenge differently 
and from different perspectives so that we are not in a constant mindset of competition and combating an issue that we see as a problem, but rather working as collaborators to make it mutually beneficial and sustainable in in the true sense of that word. And what's interesting to me is remembering, you know, some of these stories that you shared in that first interview and in that first book about your starting to see it differently and this shift in your perspective and mindset. And then I love how that has blossomed more fully in this newest book because you take us basically from trying to re-see the situation into not only trying to re-see it and and change our mindset that way, but re-hear it, re-feel it, re-smell it, and you embed all of this fantastic scientific research going on around the globe to bring us this fuller picture of what it means to be a humane gardener in in a sense. Yeah. And and the starting point for this new book was, you know, I, I would always say to my husband, I wish people could see and feel the world the way that other creatures do, because then maybe they wouldn't do this stuff. Maybe they wouldn't right. do their leaf blowers right. all day long. And and he was like, well, why don't you write a book on that? Because there's all these books about gardening for human senses, but there aren't really any right. on, on gardening with wildlife senses in mind. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we return to conversation with Nancy Lawson the humane gardener, as she is known, sharing more about her deeply researched book into the sensory lives of the plants and animals all around us, and what that can teach us about being far more sensate and compassionate humans. We'll be right back for more with Nancy on her newest book, Wildscape. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. The Garden Conservancy presents the Garden Futures Summit on Friday, September 29th and Saturday, September 30th at the New York Botanical Garden. It's a two-day in-person event that looks to sustain the remarkable passion and interest in gardening today by presenting a selection of the most exciting ideas shaping the future of gardens and society at large. For more information or to purchase tickets, visit gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. Hey, it's Jennifer. I want to circle back to something that we talked about last week in conversation with Linda Vodder, and that was her description of being a gardener as a person who raises a garden. 
and my response that our gardens raise us. I really like this image that we are not just one place at one time, but that this is an evolutionary relationship, changing us incrementally, raising us into the humans or spaces we were meant to be. Just as we raise buildings, we raise children, we raise a question, and we raise an issue in our community. To be raised by a garden, to raise a garden. These seem to me like very high callings in life. I wonder what you think about that. And if you feel you have been raised by your garden as much as you have helped to raise it, let me know. Send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I would love any of your garden raising or human raising garden stories. We're back now to our conversation with Nancy Lawson, the humane gardener, master naturalist, and author most recently of Wildscape, trilling chipmunks, beckoning blooms, salty butterflies, and other sensory wonders of nature. The book explores the gamut of sensory skills employed by plants and animals to make their lives and ways in the world, from scent to sight taste, touch, and sound. As we come back, Nancy is sharing more about the first section of her book, delving into the scentscape all around us. It's something that people hadn't thought about, partly because it hadn't been studied much either in the past. I mean, you know, I don't, I, I don't think scientists thought that birds or frogs could really smell. Um, much until pretty recently and um we didn't even know our own capacity for scent i mean the first time i read about the number of odors we could pick up on Mm -hmm. it was much 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 lower than what scientists now think we can right i mean it it went from something like a hundred to two thousand right it was something like that it's like it's like a trillion. Um, right. <laughs> it's crazy. Right. But we can't really interpret most of them. So so even though the capacity's there, it's, yeah, we don't, we don't, that's why we don't smell as well as, as some other organisms that have to be out there all the time. We can't make sense of it. And I just started to think about those things in, in the framework of what I was seeing in my own space. And my initial thought was I had done articles for quite a while on noise pollution, light pollution, and um, I wanted to travel initially and go and hang out with these scientists and mm-hmm. um, and watch them in action doing their work. But then it was right around the time the pandemic hit that I really was getting into writing the book. And so I decided on the new framework would be just just to, and also i didn't know how was i going to narrow down the vast mm-hmm. <laughs> number of right also when you want to touch on plants too and how they're experiencing the world i mean it's different not only by type of animal but even by species and so i just thought well i'll just narrow this down 
based on cool things that I'm seeing here and then look at the research and oftentimes there really isn't much uh, research or any research sometimes and on certain things and I would talk to scientists and and after like trying to do an exhaustive scientific literature search and not finding anything and they would say well we just don't know you know I mean or, or I'd show them some of my videos and they would say that's cool I've never seen that before and right, so right. and so that's one reason I mean pulling in research from from around the world was also a way to okay so we don't really know about these you know, there's so much natural history studies that just haven't been done on even animals considered common. And so, but there are related species. There are things that we do know, like these are the possibilities of what could be even happening. Right. And right. so. I was, frankly, I was astounded at the research you did find at how much there was, even if it was, you know, like, I forget where it was in the book, but there was something that you found a reference in like the 1930s, but then it hadn't really been followed up or, or, you know, deepened. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's, that's actually really cool that, you know, there, there is, there are little bits and pieces of it. And you did such a good job of, of bringing them in and also keeping us kind of on track to to understand that there's so much more to be done, but we also have a pretty interesting understanding. So you you can one of the things you do in the book is that you contextualize this process, as you just said, through what you are experiencing in your two-acre garden, essentially through the course of of the pandemic. Um and what's happening in your own human personal life uh, with with the the end of your father's life, which is very moving. Um, and I think will resonate with many, many people who, uh, as we all experience this this phenomenon together, um, these insights, you know, pull on our intellect and our emotional understanding of what that time period was and still is to some extent. So take us to your your garden and take us to maybe let's walk through the chapters Nancy and talk about uh the scentscape and some of the interesting um takeaways you might have gleaned from that research um and that you are hoping we take away from reading the book. And then we'll do that with each section. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The the other yeah, soundscape um was really interesting to try to to try to even you know scratch the surface of because in some ways I mean to me at least it's it's one of the most hidden because I I mean, for example, you know, a, a bumblebee is finding a nest, a nest site by by smelling out mouse urine um, or the natural materials that the bumblebee mother is has used to make her nest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's something I would never pick up on myself. And one of the things that I first watched that I connected with the Senscape was uh, you know, we've all seen monarch caterpillars dropping their frass onto the leaves and mm -hmm. 
but I was just down with the violets one day weeding or something and and I saw a fritillary caterpillar on the on the violets and 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 then I I saw his body just crunching up and a, a bulge going through it and then I saw I saw him shoot his frass really far and really fast and I started video videoing it and um and and I didn't know if there was going to be anything I could find about it other than yeah cat you know caterpillars poop and whatever but <laughs> but this projectile pooping was pretty interesting it was yeah. pretty cool and so yeah. then I found um that a woman at Georgetown University Martha Weiss had actually had done quite a bit of research on silver spotted skippers um shooting their poop which she also just accidentally happened to see when she was studying them for some other reason and she did a whole bunch of experiments that narrowed it down to why because it could have been a number of possibilities and figured out that they were trying to avoid predation by paper wasps that could sniff them out and but then you know I it turned out she then wrote this whole paper on defecation ecology and and the fact that yeah, people should be studying this more because it it can regulate so many interactions among different creatures and so um you know and she she found all these names for it like turd tossing poop shooting flash frass flinging <laughs> <laughs> i was laughing at this list yeah <laughs> so um i also saw monarch butterflies seeking out dried leaves and extending their proboscises on them and that was another accidental sighting that led to a collaboration with a chemical ecologist in Germany eventually because at first I had no idea what was going on at first I thought these monarchs were just perching and I was seeing them land on dried leaves of bone set Eupatorium serotinum and then I realized they were putting their proboscises around holes in the leaves. One of them I saw scratching with his feet around these tiny little holes made by flea beetles. And and then it eventually turned out that that they are gathering pyrolyzidine alkaloids, which a whole bunch of insects, especially butterflies and moths in the tropics, gather from dried or injured plants and they use them in their defenses and th these other insects use them also um uh, they synthesize them into pheromones uh, it's not thought that monarch butterflies do that they're they're um they don't use pheromones in that same way but um but so I, I mean, this was really fascinating and there were hardly any reports on it. And, and one question I kept having was, how are they finding these plants? And why are they going to this specific one? And um, and there's some sort of um, scent that does get released as the cell walls break down, but it hasn't been captured yet. As Michael Beaupre, the, the ecologist that I have been working with on it, told me it's 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 just it's basically so ephemeral it's it, it's really hard to capture and so 
they think that it's alcohol based. Um, but I just thought, well, how are how are they finding dried leaves on these particular species? And it turns out there's a number of different um, plant families that have plants that contain paralyzing inoculoids, but we just don't know the ones that monarchs would actually use. We only know a few of them. And we've gotten reports. We started a, a community science project. And um, so we know they go to like blue mistflower and Joe Pieweed. Um, but yeah, so that was fascinating. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting to me, um, and, and there's a term for it that you introduce us to called aeroecology and basically the study of the smells on in in the air of above ground um you know that are in the air and traveling in that way and the ways that many animals whether it's you know the butterflies or the snakes or the birds or or other insects are using them for all of these cues on you know where to find food where to how to mate when to mate who to mate with and and where to migrate and you know those animals that are using their poop uh to actually keep people away from them so they they put their poop all over them or around right. them to, pr to protect them and then there are those others that realize that if they don't get their poop away their predators can find them more easily and they will be food and then you think you know, and you go into this, you think about all of the ways we have disturbed and fragmented not only physical habitats, but these oral habitats. And it's one we've never, we haven't thought that much about. And that if we don't think about it more and more quickly, we stand the chance of doing even greater harm then we need to now that we're understanding more, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, there were these really interesting studies on odor pollution. And right. um, I talked to a, a scientist in Pennsylvania, Jordana Sprayberry, about some of her work. And, you know, they've, the, the, they've found that, um, bumblebees will sort of gravitate away from fertilizer odors. Um, fungicide increases the time it takes for them to find flowers. Uh, they can't they can't learn or recognize floral scents as well in one of the flowers right. they studied, wild bergamot. And there's been studies on honeybees and how they, you know, diesel exhaust alters the scents of flowers and they can't find the flowers. And so that's a really pretty new field. Um, mm -hmm. And, but it makes you just think about all of the different things we could be introducing besides the obvious um, uh, pesticide scents. Because if if we've got a lot of strong smelling just even non-native plants, for example, how is that changing the natural scentscape? Right. Or masking the sense of the natives that the bees need or the butterflies need, et cetera. Right. And you also tie this quite beautifully from the smallest things, you know, the the nematodes and the parasites up to the uh the invertebrates, to the arthropods, to the mammals, to the 
uh, birds and that they're all they all are using these senses to to make their lives and and to make their lives healthy and to live them out through their full cycles. And at each level, like we are also getting in their way um, and or disturbing or fragmenting, whether it's through air pollution um, and uh, through all of these other disturbances that we that we know some of the things we're doing that, and we know how they're disturbing, but we haven't looked at this level of research from this perspective. But it, it gives you so much, um, so much to think about in terms of what you're planting, when, where you're planting it, uh, but also what you're doing in your garden. And it's, you know, yet another, for me, it is another confirmation that the less we do outside of what happens in this place prior to us being here, um, the the better off we we are or our gardens are for those other lives. I mean, that's sort of the takeaway over and over again for for me from this from this book. Yeah, yeah, it's in in watching and waiting and seeing what happens when you just take a step back because you learn so much from, yeah. Yeah. these interactions that you see and you don't see them if you're doing that 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 sort of thing like one of the things that I like to mention also in my presentations is the it's by really sitting quietly sometimes it's hard to find a quiet oral space in the, in the neighborhood uh, in the summer especially but but sometimes I found them sitting on the bench by my pond and I would hear things I had never heard before, um, and the rustling in the leaves would, 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 would show to me would 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 point me toward you know a brown thrasher that I, I would never normally see. They're very good at hiding, and mm-hmm. um, and and I would I would just I would see like frogs hopping down the down the path you know, in implexus mating, hopping toward the other little pond. And and once you just sit still for a while and stop making noise, the rabbits would would come. One came right up to my flip-flop and sat under under me on the bench. And and I it was just an amazing experience to just try that and and oh what I was gonna say is that the 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 rustling leaves are like on the lowest end of the decibel scale and the leaf blowers that take them all away are on the highest almost the highest end and what do, what do we miss when we deploy this militarized equipment on our gardens This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we return to conversation with Nancy Lawson, the humane gardener as she is known, sharing more deeply about her most recent book, Researching the Sensory Lives of the Plants and Animals All Around Us, and what that can teach us about being far more sensitive and compassionate humans. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So, you know, my main takeaway from this conversation with Nancy over and over and over again is just exactly how much we don't know 
how much we think we know, but how much we still have to learn. We must have to learn. How much more we have to study, to look at, to reconsider, to listen for, to hear differently, to see differently, and for more intently caring for our garden lives, certainly. The more we know, the more we know we don't know it all. So take Nancy's advice. Take some time to sit still and just look and just listen and see what happens. We're back now to our conversation with Nancy Lawson, author of Wildscape, Trilling Chipmunks, Beckoning Blooms, Salty Butterflies, and Other Sensory Wonders of Nature. As we come back, Nancy and I are deliberating on the trophic cascades of consequences from living in and on this planet made oftentimes insanely noisy by humans and their militarized landscape norms. Beyond the most obvious, such as leaf blowers and chainsaws and mowing machines are noisy and disturbing to us and therefore must be disturbing to everybody else, uh, plants and animals alike. But the idea which you introduce right in the, the front of the book, in the introduction to the book, is that these are forms of communication and language beyond our ability to perceive them these scents, these sounds, these textures, these uh, visual displays are sensory alphabets, I think you refer to them as, and that every time we disturb them, we are diminishing the communication systems of these animals we love. And each time we do that, we diminish their ability to thrive. And so like you, you give an example in the sound chapter of the fact that in cities where things are noisier, um, not that suburbia and rural life with blowers and mowers and whatever aren't noisy, but the, the din of a city is a little more constant, that the, the birds and the insects actually have to change not only their own decibel, but when they change their decibel in order to be heard, they often diminish their range so that they don't use the whole scale of tone that they could uh, because they have to hit these loudest notes to be heard. And that while they do still live out their life cycle, there are diminished health quality of life indicators for all stages, for you know how many eggs they lay, to the health of their chicks, to their longevity, as a result, it seems, or certainly strongly correlated with this need to constantly be screaming, kind of. Yeah, right. This extra energy that they use, um, and there's there's so many different tracks that that the scientists go down to study you know, how does it also affect what competitors are picking up on? Uh, you right. Know? And is the male bird seen as more of a competitor and more robust if he's got a narrower range or a wider range? And sometimes it's these things are different for different species. But I think, yeah, right. overall, the the 
the results of, of a lot of these different studies that take place not only with traffic and sometimes with real traffic noise, but often they'll uh, have traffic noise recordings, um, but also with gas compressors, um, natural gas compressors, places where they have, they can have a somewhat natural area too. They've studied uh, how noise in those places affects breeding and foraging and yeah, they've shown that there's often reduced egg hatching, like in bluebirds and tree swallows. There's decreased foraging efficiency uh, for owls, for bats. And one study by a woman who also studied the white, white crown sparrows, um, she, she studied tachinid flies and crickets, um, Jennifer Phillips and is her name. And she... She went and she used recordings. I think it was recordings of traffic noise. And tachinid flies need to um, lay their eggs. This this species that she was studying lays their eggs in in field crickets. This particular species, and and they need to be able to hear where the crickets are. And right. when they couldn't hear where they were, they could you know live out their life cycle and breed. And and so. You know that's great for the crickets, but then what about the the plants that the crickets eat? There's suddenly a lot more crickets, so it, it changes how it has these ripple effects across the ecosystem. And right. uh, another one was in um, New Mexico near the natural gas compressors, where they were studying how the noise affected the forests, and because the scrub jays were avoiding. Mm -hmm. The noisy plots they weren't distributing pinion pine seeds and so there are a lot right. fewer pinion pines over time and so i mean it's got to be happening all over the place and one of the things that i couldn't find any studies on it would be really hard first of all to do studies on lawnmower and leaf blowers without being like really inhumane but also it's circumstantial it's not chronic it's acute and so I talk to people about this because the, the fact is that a lot of these acute noises are, are so frequent, especially in season, they're becoming more and more chronic. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and they, you know, they, I think a lot of researchers do think that it is having an effect. They just don't, it's just not been quantifiable yet. Right. right. Um, but even to the point where noise stresses out monarch caterpillars and that was something that i i noticed yeah. in the monarch caterpillars by the road on the milkweed i saw them flinching and i kind of made a note of it i took a video of it and then sometime around that time i saw uh, one of the science stories in the new york times by about this guy andy davis in florida who studies does a lot of research on monarchs and and they found not only does it stress them out, but they started biting the his students. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. And so it's nobody likes nobody likes this kind of noise, you know. I mean it's mm -mm. those cascading effects that you don't think about automatically, but that you made visible in in all you know, many instances throughout the book. And as you say, we can only predict that if you were able to find that many 
and see that many cascading effects, you can multiply that by, you know, a lot as to the different effects that we still haven't seen or how this has played out over different climates, over different ecosystems in different ways. Um, but it was, yeah, really interesting, the the soundscape and the importance of that range of sound, like you, you mentioned right in the beginning of your response right there was, you know, that while it might seem like the biggest, loudest, boldest bird might, um, you know, get the most attention for from a mate. It has, in fact, been shown that it's the the range and some of the the nuance to the song that is a better mate uh, kind of criteria. Um, but they they don't, you know, in in these noise polluted places, they can't demonstrate that. And you know, there were some of these cascading effects. Nancy were just heartbreaking. Yeah, they, I know. And I mean, I feel bad. I just laughed about the monarch caterpillar biting researchers, but it's not funny. It's just like shocking. Mm -mm. Um, no, yeah. And it's sad and it's sad to see it too. And well, and you use the appropriate term for it in the book, which is like these caterpillars are experiencing road rage. Like that's how anxious and stressed they are living in the conditions that they are forced to live in aside human life. Yeah. And that was the, that was part of the name of the study, I think, road rage. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah, it's, if a caterpillar feels that way, I mean, who else also feels that way? Just countless animals. And mm -hmm. well, I, it, it kept feeling to me like you were using the isolation and disconnection that we were forced oh. into in the pandemic yes. as a way for us to be more empathetic and, and to be so much more sensitive to our own sensory lives mm -hmm. in order to try and understand what we are doing and have done mm -hmm. to these other lives. Yeah. Well, yeah, it did make me think a lot about, you know, the social distancing that we were forced into um, and the fact that we could get by um, seeing each other on Zoom and we don't need the sense necessarily to survive. We need it, we need it to avoid danger. Um, we need to be able to smell those things. But, but I, I, yeah, I, I kind of thought about like, the fact that we are inflicting so much distancing on plants and animals in uh, in our quest to create the perfect landscapes, not just anymore, even in our home gardens, but in corporate places and public places, the the um, the lack of um, connection between our floral and faunal communities, like visible, visible tactile connection is astonishing now with the, the little foundation shrubs everywhere and the mulch, mulch volcano trees. And uh, it's hard to walk around in these landscapes for me anymore. And so I think I was thinking about the fact that, um, we 
what, what, what happened to us when we couldn't touch each other, when we couldn't, when we couldn't smell each other, when we couldn't um, be together, it was very isolating and very, and very damaging to a lot of people, but it wasn't, it wasn't in itself a threat to our survival for the most part. It was actually, and so, but um, yeah, I mean, and my father, um, my father died uh, in April, 2021. And, and I couldn't, I, we, we hadn't been able to be close to him for quite a while and um and i you know i thought about the idea that his entire work work life had been about keeping plants apart because they they were trying to grow them for the cat flower industry and things like that um they needed to be able to not have his main thing was was he was a virologist and so he was right, right. um had worked on keeping plants in sanitized containers and um preventing them from getting disease that wouldn't make them saleable for market and um you know and i i i think that that mindset carry has carried so far over into not just house plants but the more natural landscape that we yeah we don't see anymore that that plants need these tiny little organisms that so many of them that we haven't we know nothing about we haven't even discovered and many of them we never will and there's that very beautiful hope that you offer uh to the reader in every chapter, that while we have created this disturbance and this fragmentation, and in some cases just outright destruction, we also have the capacity through our gardens, through our sitting still and listening and looking and smelling and touching with greater sensitivity and greater curiosity, we can allow for regeneration and restoration in our places in small ways that then cascade into important life and regeneration of all of these sensory alphabets. Uh, and it's a beautiful, a beautiful and poignant moment in the book when you are, you know, going to the hospital to be with your father in the very end. And, you know, I think flowers weren't allowed and you snuck some in and, you know, at the kind of moment of his passing, there's this beautiful and what you see as hopeful shower outside the hospital window of pink blossoms and seeds falling uh, in the, the weather of the moment. Is there anything you would like to add about the research you found and and the hope you did find in just what you're doing with your own two acres there in Maryland and what you see other gardeners uh, in the world as we are connecting to one another, the progress we are making to be more humane and sensitive 
in the full meaning of that word, um, humans. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a push and pull for me because the, the industry of, of pest control and lawn care, they've really consolidated uh, and, and their marketing is so huge. And so that discourages me. But on the other hand, I think there are so many more people paying attention to not only things they didn't notice before, but 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 animals that they would have dismissed or been freaked out by um, in the past. And and I think you know, when I'm doing research, it always gives me hope to find these amazing nuggets of these these hidden contributions that the animals are making and and when you share that or when you see someone else sharing that it's fantastic to see how many people respond because they're looking for ways to share it with other people and persuade other people to go a little more gently on the land and so i mean i'm thinking about like one of my favorite parts of the book is the touchscape and one of my favorite touchscape ambassadors is the chipmunk <laughs> yes yes yeah because they use just every part of the tree you know and i hadn't really thought about it till i was watching them and seeing them getting beetle larvae in the stumps and and then reading about how they when they fall from trees, the leaves cushion their falls and and they make their burrows in the hollowed out roots of fallen trees oftentimes. And I mean, they're just like total creatures of the trees. And so when I started researching voles and I found a researcher in New Hampshire who'd studied voles and chipmunks and mice and found that they're all moving around mycorrhizal fungi. I mean, they're all dispersing spores in the forest. Right, right. <laughs> and so it was like, well, I mean, look at that. People get so mad at these animals for eating plants or digging or what have you, but they're they're helping nurture the forest. And, yeah. um, you know, but I think it takes this sort of, it takes just, just, it takes a little bit of time for people to just think if they just think about it for a little bit and have a little bit of patience. Um, and that's, I think that what we're fighting against when we try to help people understand that is this instant culture and instant marketing and creating an instant garden and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the garden in a day on TV kind of concept. Um is is so soul sucking and ultimately defeating. I mean, those things won't last, and you don't get to experience all of this. Yeah, I would love to have you end by reading um, the the final page of of the book, and maybe set the context to for what has just happened before this last paragraph on this last page. Yeah. So. I had been watching a wood thrush a couple flying around the front yard. And wood thrushes are, we hear them usually, but they're typically forest birds. And so I was 
very excited because we have we're turning our front yard into a little forest too and this was validation to see these two and just so lovely because they were flying from the maple to the hedge and back and swooping and swooping low as they do uh and then our i called will over to to the window and on the window are decals which are spaced like two inches apart there was one area that had fallen off um one decal and so it was just one little space and a wood thrush um the female that was leading the male around uh, hit the window so then outside our window the stunned wood thrush flew away but i'll never know if she was okay or whether her mate found her again this is not just my home and as long as i live it will always belong to the birds and other wild animals whose families have lived here for generations before mine they deserve better here and wherever they may travel so i've joined our local and state initiatives to make sure all our buildings are safe for them in their fractured but still beloved homeland. I've also joined the broader community of environmentalists to try to piece back together some of our wounded landscapes, ensuring that future generations of hummingbirds, wrens, fireflies, plant hoppers, wasps, squirrels, butterflies, and bees have all the leaves, mosses, twigs, and other home building materials they need. As we try to envision what a more humane, diverse, and welcoming community looks like, it helps to imagine the animals serving on their own HOA board or city council and channel a vision of what they would like to see. What would the world look like if we gave a vote to these non-human residents, and why shouldn't we? Not only what they would like to see, but what they would like to smell and hear and touch. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your work, for this beautiful and moving book that you have offered out to us to help increase our own sensory awareness of the lives around us and really appreciate your time today, Nancy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nancy Lawson, author most recently of Wildscape, trilling chipmunks, beckoning blooms, salty butterflies, and other sensory wonders of nature, is a habitat consultant and a master naturalist. She is founder of the Humane Gardener LLC, and she pioneers creative, wildlife-friendly landscaping methods. Certified as a Chesapeake Bay landscape professional, Nancy co-chairs Howard County Bee City in Maryland and helped to launch a community science project, Monarch RX, based on scientific discoveries made in her very own backyard garden. Her books, Garden Advocacy and Scientific Endeavors, have been featured in the New York Times, The Washington Post, Oprah Magazine, Entomology Today, and Ecological Entomology. 
Join us again next week when we head to Wisconsin to check in with horticulturalist Aaron Presley on all the botanical updates and innovations at the stellar Olbrick Botanical Gardens in Madison, where they are celebrating and centering native plants, native peoples, and the incredible cultural literacy offered to us in gardening at its largest. That's next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you. Through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support by Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications by Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.